Hey there, and welcome to Vet Club. It's Vet Books. Vet Books. Vet Books. It is. It would be Vet Books number seventeen because yeah. we're on chapter sixteen. Yeah. <laughs> I don't and know why one. that's just ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. So chapter sixteen of uh, Silverstein and Hopper's second edition of Small Animal Critical Care Medicine. This chapter is entitled Hypoventilation, and it was authored by Meredith Daly, uh, who I don't know for whatever that's worth. Um, so I'm trying to remember. So the last, the last chapter was just on hypoxemia. So low oxygen, um, concentration in the blood. And this chapter is on hypoventilation. So I I think it's a good opportunity to remind everybody that, um, there are two reasons that you breathe. Do you know what they are? To get oxygen and to get rid of carbon dioxide. You're so good at this. Yes. Yeah. So to bring in oxygen, um, and we usually refer to that as oxygenation, and to get rid of CO2, which we refer to as ventilation. So when we, whenever we're talking about ventilation, medically speaking, we are talking about the exchange of carbon dioxide. Um, so like when people say I'm hyperventilating, like they may or may not be. Um, but uh, technically, medically when you're talking about hypo, meaning low, low ventilation means your carbon dioxide is increasing because you're not ventilating enough to get rid of the CO2, since that's why you ventilate. Um, And if you're hyperventilating, your CO2 is low because you are blowing off too much carbon dioxide. So by definition, hypoventilation is associated with hypercapnia or elevated carbon dioxide in the blood. Um, That's how you diagnose it, essentially. Um, So it doesn't necessarily, like it correlates, um, but it doesn't necessarily, um, uh, it's not perfectly associated with breathing. Um, And that's important to remember. Um, And this will kind of come up a little bit later when we start talking about some other parts of this chapter. But um, this chapter is... It's equation heavy. <laughs> There's a bunch of equations on the first couple pages. Um, and, you know, they're included just to kind of drive home some points about physiology. Calculus. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, these aren't equations that we, like, we're not going to do this math routinely. Like, the so, some of the stuff we'll actually do the math. We'll, we'll do, like, an AA gradient or something like that. But most of these, it's more the, the concept. It's understanding the relationship between different volumes or volumes and pressures and and different things. So um, it's not necessarily that it's like, oh, you got to look at these equations and memorize them because you're going to use them every day. No, it's just, it's a way to sort of illustrate the relationship um, of what's happening in the body. So uh, probably not going to spend a lot of time talking about that in this chapter because I want to keep it clinically relevant. But um, I've sort of forgotten where I was going with all of this. Um, Essentially though, when we're talking about hypoventilation, we do have to have a measurement of the, uh, of the CO2, the carbon dioxide. And there's two ways we can measure it. We can either measure it in the blood, um, or we can measure it in the exhaled air. Um, and so we usually call that an end tidal CO2. So the end breath carbon dioxide in what you exhale, or we just get a blood sample and measure how much carbon dioxide is That's dissolved. That's one you in always that. have in your CPR stuff. The end tidal CO2? Yeah. Yeah, because that is a quick and easy way, breath to breath, to kind of measure. And in CPR, we're usually talking about it as a marker of how good our perfusion is because the blood flow has to bring the CO2 from the tissues where it was um, produced as part of um, cellular metabolism to bring it back to the lungs. Um, but usually when we're talking about ventilation, we're talking about how, many, um, how much gas is being exchanged over time. And, and so that's where 
some of these um, definitions and just the words we use can sort of matter. So if you say, you know, a patient is hyper or hypoventilating, we often think it's going to correlate with respiratory rate, but not always because um, ultimately how much total gas is exchanged is going to be dependent on how many breaths you take and how big are those breaths. So if your tidal volume, which is the the volume of essentially one breath, increases or decreases, that will obviously affect how much gas is exchanged in addition to how many of those breaths you take. So if you reduce the number of breaths you take, but they're all very deep breaths, your minute ventilation or the amount of gas exchanged in one minute um, might be held constant or vice versa. If your tidal volume decreases, for whatever reason, maybe you have a disease that forces your tidal volume to be decreased, you would increase your respiratory rate to try to maintain minute ventilation. Um, because, you know, it's a pretty powerful stimulus to take a breath. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, I, I think this chapter, one thing it does do a, a really nice job of is um, to talk about, you know, how breathing works, like neurologically in the brain and, and kind of the neurologic mechanisms that go into that. Because that I think that is important to keep in mind. Now, something that I just find endlessly fascinating um, is that breathing is one of the few things um, that we have conscious control of in the body, but also it will continue to happen whether we think about it or not. There's a couple other things um, that like blinking and swallowing um, that even if you're not thinking about it, they will, they will happen. Blinking in particular, but I don't know. Then talking during a movie. Ooh, <laughs> you know, we didn't have any of that at the movies today. Because they had a new commercial that said to not talk during the movie. The yeah, very threatening they, one. It was more threatening than usual, but they have those commercials all the time and people still do it. But usually, it's, lately, it's just been silence your cell phone. Yeah. Like they haven't no, told you to be maybe quiet. Maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah. It was like, stop talking. Yeah. yeah it was kind of nice. It was, it was almost weird. It was so silent in between, like even the previews. Anyway, um, we're getting off topic. But uh, no, it turns out you actually have conscious control over whether or not you're talking as well. Um, minus a few, like, I don't know if you have Tourette's or you're a sleepwalker or a sleep talker. All right. Anyhow, breathing, you have conscious control over it <laughs> to a point. I mean, I always like to, to point this out that if you, um, like you try holding your breath and you can do it for a little while, but eventually the drive to breathe is really, really powerful. And uh, unless you're like a toddler, in which case you can hold your breath until you pass out. And so I like to make the <laughs> comment that if you overdo it, if you try to override the system too much, your unconscious brain will take over because your conscious brain is not responsible. We're taking the keys away from you. You're no longer in charge. So same thing if you hyperventilate, like if you um, breathe really quickly, you take um, faster breaths or larger breaths or both. Um, I always like to say, this is how you can impress your friends with how long you can hold your breath. This is what free divers do. Um, what's, what's the Luke Besson movie that you like about free uh, diving? Deep Blue. Deep blue. Yeah, yeah. And that's what they'll do. They'll hyperventilate. They will blow off CO2 um, to effectively alter the pH in their blood so that they can hold their breath longer. Um, and they get really good at doing that just to the point before they're going to pass out. But if you're not trained, you might just pass out. Yeah. That's the danger. Yeah, I think you don't want to do that underwater. The, the Japanese guy is trying to break the record and he just passes out before. He yeah. So that's your unconscious brain being like, nope, not responsible. Taking the keys away. Um and so that happens in both directions. Again, it's really hard to hold your breath um, that long. Uh, for, there are some children who seem to be able to do that when they have like temper tantrums and they just hold your breath, hold their breath, and then they usually do pass out. So it'd be like you, you. I don't think it would be possible for you to 
will yourself to like kill yourself, <laughs> like in that sense that you're like, I'm going to hold my breath. And then no, because your unconscious brain is going to take over. Um, you can't just be like, I'm going to hold my breath till for, no, you can't do it. You just can't. Um, but within a reasonable scale of, of, um, you know, it, differences in, in CO2 and therefore pH, like you can alter your breathing pattern to some degree. Um, so I just, I think that's kind of fascinating. Um, the other thing that's kind of a misconception that people have is that like what, if you're not thinking about it, if you're sleeping or you're just, you know, doing any millions of other things besides thinking about breathing, you're going to take a breath. And what triggers that? People um, think that it's the carbon dioxide levels in your blood. Actually, that's, some people think it's the oxygen levels in your blood. And that's also not true unless it gets really, really bad. So generally it is the pH of your blood. So you do have chemoreceptors or receptors that sense changes in the chemistry. Um, but it, the evidence is actually that they respond, those receptors respond to changes in pH, which is affected by your CO2. If your carbon dioxide increases, it's going to combine with water um, and ultimately form H2CO3, which will then dissociate into bicarbonate, HCO3 minus, and a proton which means more protons means more acidic and more acidic means a lower ph and lower Spicy. ph and lower ph means um you'll try to take a breath and um and and the reverse will also happen so fewer hydrogen ions means you don't need to take a breath right now less spicy not as spicy, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's changes, which is incidentally makes sense when we're talking about like acid-base changes. If you have other reasons to um, increase or decrease the amount of acid in your system, your brain is going to respond to that. And that's how we compensate for a metabolic acidosis or alkalosis by our respiratory system because it's responding to pH and not CO2 directly. So it's actually a, a better system to respond to pH than uh, carbon dioxide because it means we can um, use our respiratory system to help balance out acid base imbalances when it's um, from the metabolic system. So got a little off topic there, but that's, I like talking about acid base. So there's a, there's a big box in this chapter um, <laughs> on hypoventilation yeah, for all, all the differential diagnoses for hypoventilation. And I take a little bit of issue with it. So I like how it's organized, um, basically just decreased minute ventilation. Um, and so meaning you're not taking enough or deep enough breaths or both. Um, and so that's pretty good. So it organizes by um, neurologic diseases. So central like brain issues, um, which is good. And it, you know, it gets detailed into like what part of the brain based on where the respiratory center is and all that stuff. Um, but then in order for that, your brain to get the signal to your diaphragm, it has to go through your cervical spine. So cervical spinal diseases um, are kind of the next category there. And then it moves into other neurologic problems. So at the effector organ, so lower motor neuron diseases. So your brain works, your spinal cord works, but the muscle, the the nerves at the muscle don't work. Um, so those are your lower motor, motor neuron diseases. And then um, essentially changes in um, other other chemical changes in your blood. So, so these are all the causes of? These are causes that would make you inappropriate. You're not taking enough breaths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so again, if your brain is broken, then you might not yeah. It might not work. If your neck is busted, then the signal from your brain can't get to your diaphragm. Or if the nerves at your diaphragm aren't working, then that could um, that could be a problem. Um, and then there are some drugs that will interfere with your brain's ability to respond to those changes in pH. Um, so anesthetic drugs in particular, opioids are another class of drugs that are known to be respiratory depressing. So they just make it so you um, won't take a breath until your pH gets much lower than you would normally be. Uh, except. Um, 
again, and then as I, you know, I kind of mentioned, this is a little, little trickier one, but, um, as I just said, if you're compensating for a metabolic disorder, um, where there's, uh, an, uh, alkalosis, um, potentially that would cause you to not take as many breaths because you're trying to balance out that acid-based disturbance. Alkalosis just means it's more basic. Yep. You're so smart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're more alkaline blood. Alkaline water. Alkaline. Yeah. Um, where they lose me a little bit in this in this box is the fourth category, which they call abnormal respiratory mechanics. Now, the, the second one, which is respiratory fatigue from increased work of bleeding, not, not bleeding, increased work of breathing, <laughs> is absolutely an important differential for hypoventilation. So you're not taking enough breaths because you've just become fatigued. And I, I like to use the analogy that like if you get chained or handcuffed to a, um, a treadmill, you're going to, and, and you are told that if you stop running, you die, you're going to probably try to keep running for a while, but eventually your muscles are going to give out. And that's true also of your lungs. Um, oh, we know not that really your CrossFit. lungs, but the muscles, yeah, the muscles that, um, that help your lungs to do that. They're still muscles and they will fatigue. Um, but so that, that's all well and good, but then they're like plural space disease will cause hypoventilation. And I'm like, no, not really. Because what plural space disease, so meaning there's stuff taking up the space around your lungs so your lungs can't expand, is going to the ha- have the effect of reducing your tidal volume. But your body is going to compensate by taking more breaths. <laughs> so you're going to become tachypnic in order to try to maintain a normal minute ventilation. Like that's what your body does. It says, oh, I can't take a very deep breath. I probably should take more of them then. Um, and so that, that's why we see patients with pleural space disease developing tachypnea. Now, if it gets really, really severe, could they become hypoventilatory? Yes. However, usually those patients have respiratory distress from hypoxia long before they actually develop hypoventilation, unless the hypoventilation is from fatigue because they had to work so much harder to take so many more breaths to make up for the reduced tidal volume. So there's nothing like... So it's like a roundabout way. It just goes back to It's the same thing. Yeah. So like it's... So that's why I I find it's kind of misleading to list those separately um, because patients with pleural space disease do not routinely hypoventilate. Like they they just, they tolerate it, which is why animals can come in with like like gallons of fluid in their pleural space. And it's like, oh my God, how did the owners not notice this? Well, because the animal is fine. It was compensating for a very long time. So... um, so yeah, they're they're not hypoventilating. Yeah, most pets are not athletes. So. Truth, truth. Um, so yeah, so I kind of have, and that's something that I, I think it's taught um, to students a lot because I, I hear students making that as a differential and it's like not directly. So pleural space disease, I mean, same thing, any other lung disease, um, you know, congestive heart failure, pneumonia, all of these other things really only cause hypoventilation via severe fatigue. Um, that's just kind of, I don't know. That's just really how that's going to work. So, um, obstructive things they have on here too. And it's like, yeah, usually again, it's going to cause a problem with hypoxemia long before it causes a problem of hypoventilation. And the, the reason for that is that carbon dioxide dissolves so much more effectively, um, across the alveoli into your blood than oxygen does. And so if you are having a hard time with your respiratory mechanics, the oxygenation starts to become an issue and your patient will have an issue because of that. Um, unless it gets to the point where they're fatigued <laughs> and then they will have both problems. What if with, so. like, with like a sleep apnea thing? 
like where you're stop breathing does that if you have a complete obstruction yeah it's that's both because again breathe you're just not breathing and so you're not oxygenating or ventilating Mm -hmm. which one is going to become the bigger problem earlier both at the same time yeah like you kind of have to do both so yes um but what that'll usually do is startle people awake like that's why they don't sleep very well Mm -hmm. um because you're like and so you wake up and then you know i you, you choke and you go, oh, I have to open my mouth a little bit more or something like that. Do animals get that at all? Uh, it seems like some. Yes, like, like they do. It's not sleep apnea, but yes, we have what we call brachycephalic airway syndrome where the soft palate, which is the soft, floppy, fleshy part um, on the kind of back of your mouth, the back of your throat, gets stretched out or floppy or thick or whatever, and then it can obstruct you. So that's like... Um, I think obstructive, obstruct. I think that's what sleep apnea usually is, is people that have like a, that's what snoring is too. It's the vibration from the back of that um, floppy muscle. Mm-hmm. Kind of what I've always got palate. out of sleep apnea. It's like, um, well, I, I see with the, a lot of the athletes that I follow, they're bigger. So it's just the the mass of their necks just kind of laying down gravity. Just it's causing pulls an obstruction. It down. Yeah, yeah, it's causing an obstruction, which with, if you're upright and sitting up, it's probably not an issue um, for most people. But then when you lay down and everything relaxes. Um, yeah, so people, Normal oftentimes force. like people that are overweight, um, they'll have extra tissue there and it's more likely to cause an obstruction and, and different things. There's all sorts of different reasons. So again, brachycephalic dogs, so smush face, English bulldogs and Frenchies and, and things like that tend to have this problem. And you can go in and trim the soft palate in those breeds and, and kind of open things up a little bit. That's one of the things that will do it. But, um, anyhow, so that's my, that's a little bit of my beef with that. Um, that part of the, Where's the beef? chapter. <laughs> yeah. Just not um, having that for the, the chapters. What's that? Just save all your complaints till the end and go, where's the beef? Where's the beef? Oh, we can, we can make that a little sub segment of yeah. the, the thing. Um, so, you know, the, the, it's funny, you have all this stuff on like what's going on. And then the very end is the treatment It's pretty much, they got to breathe more. <laughs> and so it's usually you have to help breathe. You either fix the reason, you know, why they weren't breathing. If you can quickly do that, which oftentimes you cannot. Um, but most of the time with these, we have to take over the work of breathing. Um, I mean, if they're under anesthesia or you can reverse drugs or something like that. Um, if they have, you know, neurologic disease, if you can quickly address that, um, if they're fatiguing, you just have to take over the work of breathing for them. Unless they're fatiguing from something that can be quickly fixed, like a chest pull full of pleural fluid. Um, if you remove that pleural fluid, they're going to be like, Oh my God, this is so much easier. I can just take like seven breaths a minute mm-hmm. and be fine. Um, so there are some things that um, you can reduce the, wor- you have to reduce the work of breathing in those cases. Um, and so a lot of times this really comes down to us just breathing for them, um, intubating them and either manually breathing for them or setting them up with a mechanical ventilator or something like that. So, um, which you can now do at your place. Yeah. That's a thing we can do. Um, and so it, it does get to be kind of tricky if you're not in a facility that can do long-term mechanical ventilation. But if it's a short-term thing where you're like, this patient is going to die, they're really struggling, um, you can knock them out, intubate them, and then buy yourself some time because you've taken over the work of breathing. And then figure it out. that squeeze thing. Yeah, right? exactly. Like either an Ambu bag like that you see or through an anesthetic circuit and you can just give them a positive pressure breath. So we do the, the work of breathing for them while you take a little time to figure out what's going on. Maybe you take some chest deck 
x-rays or, you know, and it, oh, it turns out they do just have to have all the fluid removed from around their chest or, you know, it can, is there something that I can quickly fix? Sometimes there's not. Um, and then you got to come up with a plan for, you know, how do we get them to a facility that can breathe for them? Um, and that, again, that in and of itself can be kind of a, a tricky thing. But I think for me, the most important thing to remember about um, hypoventilation is again, it's distinct from oxygenation, right? That's a, it's a separate part of the reason we breathe. And it's also, you can't recognize it just by looking at a patient. That's what I was about to ask you. It's like, you've talked about all this stuff. It's like, what is a hypoventilating? Yeah. So there's going to, essentially the way I think about it, there's going to be two types. There's going to be the type that it's a physical problem that they just can't take breaths, meaning their brain is broken, their neck is broken, their nerves are not working, and they're just not taking breaths. And that patient is internally going to be struggling, like I want to take breaths, but they physically can't do anything about it. Um, and what I actually tend to see in these patients, like if they've got a cervical myelopathy or something like a, a, a not very common, fortunately, but like a herniated disc or something that got bad enough that they couldn't breathe, they dogs tend to do this thing where they like pull their lips back with their... You can't see this if you're uh, listening to the podcast, obviously, but I'm making kind of a frog <laughs> face where it's like they, they pull their lips back. Um, and I, I just feel like I see that very commonly, but their chest isn't moving very much um, because it can't. And um, their respiratory rate can be anywhere. On, they're, it's often lower if it's a neurologic problem. They have like a, a low respiratory rate, which is kind of weird. Um, and so you have to have some sort of clinical suspicion for this. So if you have a patient that is paralyzed or isn't using its limbs very well, um, you probably need to look into this. Or, you know, when they're under anesthesia, we're always monitoring this very closely because we know that they're at risk for it in there. But if you have a patient with neurologic disease, their brain's not working, it's something you need to consider. Um, and you have to you have to test for it, either by, like I said, getting a blood test or checking an end tidal CO2, usually after they've been intubated. The other type of patient that will hypoventilate is the patient who is struggling. That's the patient who is strapped to the treadmill and they are working really, really hard and they look exhausted because they are. Um, and those are the patients that, um, they're going to die if you don't intervene. So like a, with like a heat stroke one? Not usually, not usually. Um, because heat stroke, they're breathing a whole lot because they're trying to pant. They're trying to cool mm -hmm. off. And in dogs, that's, it's, a this other reason they're not it's not why they're breathing. It's why they're panting specifically is to, um, to offload heat. But, um, so they're either going to look like they're not doing much of anything breathing wise. Um, and so they're not going to look like they're struggling or they're going to look like they're struggling a lot. Um, and it's either end of the spectrum and, and not really much in between. Um, so, and it's, so kind of in both cases, you just need to have a, is it easy to catch? It, is it the sort of thing? And it's like, oh yeah. Yeah. Like, or just uh, the blood your, test. Yeah. your test, you're going to be like, oh, okay. He's yeah. I mean, you need to... It's not something that sneaks up on you? Uh, sometimes it does. Yeah. Sometimes it kind of sneaks up on you. Again, if you're not thinking about it, if you're not like, I wonder if that patient is hypoventilating, it could totally sneak up on you. Um, it's probably not going to sneak up on you as much in a patient who is struggling to breathe, who looks outwardly like, oh, I can't take breaths. Like they're working really hard. It shouldn't really sneak up on you. But it's also not a blood test that most people are routinely checking. Like it's not going to come out on a routine chemistry. Um, and so you do have to have a, a, you have to be thinking about it. So that makes it kind of hard because if you're not thinking about it routinely and most of the time, it's not a problem. Most of the time your brain and all your muscles are working the way they're supposed to because breathing is super important um, and everything works pretty well. But um, there are exceptions to that and you just kind of have to have 
that in the back of your mind, like I'm wondering about this. And then you look for it. Now, once you've thought about it, and if you have the capability to measure CO2 in the blood, super easy. You're like, oh, that's too high. Done. Yep. They're hypoventilating. So it's not like it's hard to interpret the blood tests or anything like that. Like is the number where it should be? Yes or no. Um, but you have to have the capability of running that test, which a lot of places do, but not all. And you have to think to check it. Like that's just how it goes. Now, if you're in a practice and you don't have the ability to do like a blood gas to see what your um, uh, CO2 is uh, in your blood, and it, it can be venous or arterial, so you don't have to get an arterial sample. You could always, um, you know, intubate the patient. So sedate them um, heavily and intubate them and then hook them up to your end tidal CO2 monitor, which you ever, you have. Like any practice that is ever performing anesthesia has an end tidal CO2 monitor and then you hook them up to that. Now that gets confusing because as we said before, anesthetic drugs can cause hypoventilation. So if you give them anesthetic drugs in order to be able to intubate them, you can understand how that can get a little messy. Um, so it's obviously preferable to measure it on um, a blood chemistry, a, a blood CO2. But if you don't have that, that's it's a secondary. If you have them on a really light plane of anesthesia, um, they should be able to breathe on their own. And um, so that would be a, a second choice if you, if you had nothing else. Um, but that's that's kind of the scoop on hypoventilation. Um, so you have to understand how breathing works, understand the circumstances under which a patient might be hypoventilating, and then just have a suspicion for it and try to test for it. That's kind of the, in a nutshell. Yeah. So essentially, hypoventilation is when they don't have, or they're not getting rid of carbon dioxide yes. fast enough. And it's either because they're fatigued or something stopping them from breathing. Yeah. Yeah, we should have, I guess this could have been a lot shorter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is it in a nutshell. That was a very good summary, babe. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you have a game prepared? I do. It's kind of a game. You'll probably it's hate it. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Yeah, everybody else will like it, though. Oh, geez. I don't okay. think I Are you going to embarrass me? Of it. Probably not. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what this sound is. I don't know what this sound is. <laughs> oh, I got to turn, turn the volume, volume up. On. Nope, oh, it's not the spelling bee. It's not. The, it's not a spelling bee. Oh, I like the spelling bee. All right, I don't have a sound effect for the beginning. No sound. Song. All right, but it's a quiz show. Quiz show. You have a sound effect. I just did it. All right, <laughs> quiz show. Close the book. Oh, sorry. Can't book is closed. Book open. I didn't know what this was. You just all right. What this game is quiz show. So what <laughs> is the product of aerobic metabolism? Aerobic metabolism. The product. Yeah. Carbon dioxide? <laughs> you got it. Like, is this a trick question? No. Oh, okay, cool. Yay. All right. Question number two. Yeah. What is the gold standard for patient monitoring? For patient monitoring for hypoventilation? Sure. I would say measuring uh, uh, carbon dioxide in blood. So a PaCO2. Yeah. Whoop, 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 whoop. You got two. 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 All right. Those are the warm-up ones. Oh. So they get harder now? Yeah, they get harder now. Okay. All right, so I got to remember how to say this one. <laughs> All right, hypercapnia, uh -huh. the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the arterial blood is like the, the, the threshold, like yeah. the bottom threshold for hypercapnia. Is it higher in cats or dogs? Oh. The lower threshold would be higher... I'm going to say dogs. Dog, that's right. <laughs> that was a total guess. Do you know what it is? Uh, 45. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think it was like yeah. 46. And yeah. it was like 39 for cats. Okay. Hmm. 
Interesting. I want like studies if they've just done that, if that just was like random chance that the studies that have been published or if there's actually something where cats have like a, a lower tolerance for hypercapnia. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, know. All right. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> hypercapnia is elevated CO2 in the blood. Oh, That's psh, all it means. Whatever. <laughs> all right. Here's a tough one. Okay. Well, that's one was tough. What chapter was this? <gasps> okay. Number. It was 16 or 17. I think it was chapter 16. <laughs> All right. Now, the hardest question. Okay. You have to think about this one for a little bit. For a little bit? Okay. Got a timer what started. is 72 times 23? Oh, man. Okay. 72 times... Okay. This is... This is rude. 70 times 20 is going to be 140. And then 2 times 3 is 6. That's not right. Hang on. Ah, the, the timer is throwing me off. 72 times 23. 70, 140. 20 and 40, 180. 3. I don't know. I got confused. I need a piece of 1, paper. 1,656. 1,600. I need a piece of paper to do 70 times 20 is... 1400. Oh, yeah, 1400. What was I saying? 140? 140. And then you were adding. I was like, ah, she's not going to get it. I need a piece of so that. I was I, hoping you would give a really stupid answer like 200. Well, I didn't say 200. I was worse. Uh, I at least got the numbers right. So, so for those of you out there that don't do math well in your head, if you gave me a piece of paper, I actually, this, I always do my math on paper. I yeah, always like too. write it out because doing it in my head, I make mistakes, especially when there's a you timer going. You got four going. out of five, though. Yeah, I got That's a, awesome. I got a B. Can you do the B sound since I got a B? <laughs> I got a B. That's a passing grade. But at I'll least you it. didn't complain about any of the questions. Usually I get like, oh, that's a bogus question, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. They were, but they These were also not well formed like, questions. They were factoids, so, you know. Yeah, I only yeah. have like a couple of minutes before we do this to make the questions. <laughs> and I know nothing about any of yeah, it. Yeah, so it's hard to choose. Yeah, those were good. Probably the my most. Where did like, you get the, the 72 times 23? Was that numbers I just from made the that. chapter? That was the first question I made. Oh, <laughs> She's like, I'm going to give her a math problem yeah. in her head. That was mean. Yeah. No scratch paper at all. Nope. Oh. It's been easy with scratch paper. I know. That's why I wanted the scratch paper. Um, and a calculator would have helped too. Uh, nope. <laughs> I could have done it with the scratch paper. All right. Uh, I think that's it for chapter 16, whoop, whoop, uh, which is <laughs> episode I 17. I sure you would get that one wrong. Um, I was, cl- I was like, it was down to the two, down to the wire. So, uh, the next chapter, oh shoot, I forgot. I cl- you made me close the book. Now I don't oh, know no, what the next chapter it's is. It's chapter 17. Uh, yeah, but I got to find it. It's probably um, on. I don't know. It'll be a surprise. Something respiratory still. Oh, it's on. I found it. Wait, no. <laughs> what chapter did we just do? <laughs> uh, all right. You'll just ha- oh, table. upper airway disease. All right. Woo. Upper airway disease. We'll catch you next time. Bye.